Good morning, Ridgecrest. How are you? Glad to see everybody here this morning and everybody joining us online as well. We're thankful for uh, your presence here. We're thank for, thankful for your presence there as well. Uh, my name is Joel Bench, and I'm uh, a member here at Ridgecrest and have been for many years. Uh, my wife, Denise, is the children's minister here. And so if you uh, don't know me, that's kind of my background. I have two daughters uh, that are older. My oldest daughter is here. She has two beautiful sons that are my grandsons that I like to talk about a lot. I can show you some pictures later if you're interested at all in that. Uh, that's a little bit about me, though. And I'm always so grateful and thankful for the opportunity to uh, share in this place. And it's, it's uh, humbling to me uh, to think about standing before you this morning and uh, talking about the scripture in any kind of authoritative way. So I really want us to spend our time this morning walking through the scripture together, uh, gathering things there for each of us that would make us stronger and better and healthier uh, believers. Um, we're actually between two um, series here. Matt always preaches series. He just wrapped up Colossians two weeks ago. Uh, we had a, a message out of John last week for uh, the Lord's Supper. And next week, Matt will be beginning a new series. So he kind of left me to my own devices, which is a little bit frightening. Uh, but hopefully this morning we'll find something good for all of us uh, in the Scripture. I wanted to talk briefly this morning about uh, a couple things. And in this time of, uh, of COVID and everybody being sick, I know there's always conversations going around about symptoms, right? Uh, so somebody would say, well, I'm not feeling too good. Well, what are your symptoms, right? Do you have fever? Um, are, are you, have you, can you taste stuff, right? I mean, who, whoever thought that would be a symptom? Can you taste things? Can you smell things? All, all of these different symptoms, and we're kind of worried about those symptoms in our, in our life, and we, we struggle with those things. It's so confusing to us at times. Do we have a cough? All of those things. Today, I want us to look at some symptoms that we see in Scripture, and these symptoms are not really of uh, sickness, but instead they are symptoms of healthiness. Uh, obviously, the opposite of that would in, uh, would mean that we're sick if we're not these things, right? That we have some sickness. But the symptoms that we're going to look at today are really symptoms of a healthy Christian life and of a healthy church. Now, I'll be honest with you. I know you can't tell by looking at me, but I don't spend a lot of time at the doctor. Like. Uh, I went to the doctor a few weeks ago because I had some bad symptoms uh, and I needed some, uh, some help and I got that. I feel great now. Uh, but the truth of the matter is before that, they asked me, when was the last time you went to the doctor? And I was like, um, I can't remember. I really couldn't, I could barely remember. Um, and, and so I, I know that's hard to believe because I'm such a healthy specimen up here. But, um, but we, when we have certain symptoms in our life, it tells something about our, our situation. It tells something about what's going on with us physically. And, and all of us know about our vital signs, right? We have to take our, our pulse and our blood pressure, and some of us have to watch our uh, blood sugar levels and all of those different kinds of vital signs uh, that are going on that we have to maintain and look at. But I found this list of symptoms of a healthy body, all right? So healthy symptoms. And, and I, I found these in an article, and I thought they were kind of interesting. Um, and so I just wanted to let you hear those. It says that a healthy body, a person who's healthy, normally has thick hair and strong nails. Now, once you get to be 50-ish, the hair thing may not be a real conversation, but a healthy body has thick hair and strong nails. A healthy body has energy, 
is energetic. A healthy body does not have many headaches, and if they do, those headaches are short-lived. A healthy body has fresh breath. Now, behind all those masks, you can decide how healthy you are today, right? A healthy body has fresh breath. A healthy body has clear eyes. The eyes are white and clear. A healthy body has joints that work and don't hurt. A healthy body, listen, this is, what, this is the part I found most interesting. It says, a person who is healthy can get up from sitting cross-legged on the ground without help. Now listen, I haven't been able to sit cross-legged since I was about eight years old. So all that to say, with this list going on here, my hair and my joints and this cross-legged thing, like we're going to be lucky if I make it through the rest of this message. But a healthy body, signs of a healthy body. And folks, there are signs and symptoms of a healthy believer and a healthy church in God's word. And I want us to look at those today and see where we stand. See what kind of checkup we need. See if we need to see a physician about our current position. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 today. You can take your time and turn there in your own Bible uh, also, you could flip there on your phone, iPad, whatever you might have. We're going to take a look at 1 Thessalonians. Here, here's a little bit of history of 1 Thessalonians. Paul and Silas uh, visited this area uh, to share the gospel. And, um, and they got there, and the people were very receptive. They, it, there were Greeks there. The culture there was very much about Greek gods and, and self-indulgence and all this thing. But they began to preach the gospel, and the people of this area were very responsive, and many came to know the Lord. Many began to follow after him. But soon after that, persecution also came quickly. Harsh, severe persecution came to them. And Paul and Silas weren't able to stay very long due to this persecution, and they, they had to leave much quicker than they had desired. They wanted to stay there even longer because they loved the people there so much. And we actually see this story in Acts 17. So if you want to get more background to it, that's when they were there, they preached the gospel, the people received it, and then they were forced to leave. That's in Acts 17. After a time, though, Paul was very concerned about these young believers, and he was concerned about where they were and the health of their church and the health of the believers. And so he sent Timothy back to them to see how they were doing. And Timothy came back to him and brought a really good report, actually. He said they are living strong Christian lives. In the face of persecution, in the face of struggle, these believers are standing up for what they believe. They are acting and doing the things that they need to be doing. And yet there were some questions and some issues that needed to be addressed. Some things that weren't quite settled yet because these were young believers that they were just getting things figured out. And so what happens is Paul writes the book of 1 Thessalonians. The, our understanding is that this is one of the very earliest, maybe the very first uh, letter that Paul ever wrote. The very first time that he wrote to a church where he had served, where he and Silas had served. And he sent this letter back to them as an encouragement, as a challenge to them, and as a, uh, a list, a, a way of they could test their health and their strength. Um, it's interesting to see here that the questions that the church had, uh, many of around them, since Paul and Silas had been there, many had passed 
due to the persecution possibly or just old age, whatever it may be, sickness. People had died in the meantime. They were anticipating the return of Christ. That was what Paul and Silas had preached. They had, re- they had preached Christ come, lived, died, resurrected, and returning again. And so the anticipation of this church in the Thessalonians was that Christ would return, and he had not yet returned. So they had questions about Christ's return. They had questions about what happened to these people who had passed in the meantime. What was going to happen to them when Christ returned? So they had questions there, and they asked how should believers live in this waiting period? Now, folks, many of us look forward to the day, the coming of Christ. And many of us have grown up in church where, uh, where people would say the coming of Christ is, uh, is right around the corner. Everything about Scripture has been accomplished, that Christ could come at any moment. He could be here in any moment. And, folks, that's true. It's true. He could come at any moment. But we live in this tension. This tension that we have is that he has not yet come back. He has not yet come back. The promise, the hope, the truth of his return is real, and yet he has not returned. And for these early believers, they thought it would happen immediately. They thought it was going to be there. They were anticipating his return, as many of us do. But some of us have also gotten pretty comfortable with the fact that, eh, you know, it's been a while. I don't know if he's coming back or not. Listen, in 1 Thessalonians, in every chapter of 1 Thessalonians, Paul mentions the return of Christ. Over and over and over again, he talks about the return of Christ. Christ will return for his people. That's what he says in 1 Thessalonians. He reminds them over and over and over again. But here's the thing. He did not remind them about the return of Christ so that they might sit and wait and and give up all of life and they might just wait that he's going to be here tomorrow and everything will be good. No. He reminded them about the return of Christ because the return of Christ calls us to action, not idleness. It calls us to move forward in hope for today because we never know what tomorrow brings. So 1 Thessalonians, uh, all the background here. Paul talks early in the book about holiness. He asked them to be uh, sexually pure. He reminds them to love one another. And then he reinforces this hope of the coming of Christ for them at the end. I want us to read 1 Thessalonians 5, and we're going to start in verse 11. We're going to read down through 18, and then we're going to dive into this scripture about a little health check for us today. 1 Thessalonians 5, 11 and following. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you, And are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. But always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you so much for your love for us. And God, I thank you that uh, you've given us this word, your word, so that we might see and understand you better. And God, I pray that every time we open it, every time we look into it, 
that we would not take for granted uh, what you have for us, but instead we would desire our hope, our everything about us, God, would be that we would get something here that would change us, that would make us more like you, that would help us to understand you better. And so, God, that's what we pray for today in First Thessalonians. God, we thank you for the love that Paul had for this church. We thank you for the encouragement that he gave them, and as a result, the encouragement that he gives us to live a life full of hope, live a life that is healthy because of our relationship with you. God, we love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we see here in the first part of uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 11, uh, it starts off and it says, therefore, and uh, all good old pastors would always say, when you see a therefore, you got to ask what it's there for, right? And uh, so basically, Paul is saying, in light of everything else that I've just said, in light of the first four and a half chapters that I've written you, which he didn't write them in chapters, but in light of everything that he has written here to them, in light of this, if this is true, if these things are true, then the, the rest of this should be true as well. So he says, therefore, because of this great hope you have, therefore, because you are not in darkness, he says in, in the first part of chapter five, but instead you live in light, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Now, folks, I don't know about you, but sometimes I need some encouragement. And especially uh, in recent times, there's some difficult things going on in our lives. People are facing difficult situations. People's lives have been turned upside down. People's careers have been turned upside down. People's health have been turned upside down. And from time to time, we need some encouragement. Even this morning, I received more than one text from you, several of you, this morning. Just an encouraging word to me. Joel, we're thinking about you. Joel, the Lord is going to do uh, something through you today. Lord, uh, we're praying that the Lord will speak through you this morning. And you don't know how much that means to me. Also, after uh, my testimony from a couple of weeks ago where I talked about that I'm unsure about the future potentially of, of my career, my life, whatever it is, so many of you have encouraged me. You've, you've supported me in that. You've said that you were praying for me, and, and you don't know how much that means to me. Folks, we have to be an encouraging people. And healthy believers and healthy churches uh, are people and places where people can gain encouragement. The word there is really comfort, right? They gain comfort and help from those around them. Many of these people here at this church had lost friends and family and businesses because of their decision to follow after Christ. And, and Paul says, as a result of all of those things, encourage one another. We're all in this together. Guys, we're all in this together. As believers, as a church, as the body of Christ, we are in this life together. And there are times when some of us will be down, some of us will be struggling, and others of us are strong. And at those times, we have to encourage one another. We have to. He goes on to say, to build one another up. And the idea here is actually to fortify, to fortify one another. Uh, now, Denise and I recently, well, Denise convinced me to get a new puppy, right? I'm going to blame her. So we have this puppy and uh, he's, he's so cute, he weighed like 20 pounds, and in three weeks he weighs like 40 pounds. I'm not exactly sure what happened. His feet are the size of my fist. I'm pretty sure he's going to be able to take me really soon. 
But we got this puppy, and he's really active, and he needs to go outside and in the backyard. And, and to be honest, the fence in my backyard is old, and it has some uh, issues, some things that need to be taken care of, some areas on the fence that need to be fixed, that need to be redone, uh, that need to be reconstructed. But in the meantime, because I haven't been able to do that, I, I went to the uh, hardware store, and I bought some, like, uh, goat wire, and I ran over some areas of my fence to fortify those areas that are weak, to make it to where my dog can't get out of those areas. Now, here's the picture that Paul gives us here. A healthy church, healthy believers, they fortify each other. When we're weak, when there are areas that are not able to withstand the struggle or the trouble that we're facing, the strong amongst us come alongside and we fortify those areas. We, we lift each other up. Now listen, you're not always going to be the strong one. You're not always going to be the one that fortifies the broken fence. Sometimes you're going to be the weak picket. Sometimes you're going to be the one who can't stand up. And you're going to need someone to come along and fortify you. Again, we're in this together. Paul says to encourage one another. And to build one another up, just as you were doing. Now, many of these people, obviously, were already doing this. Paul said, just as you were doing. But he also says, this, is a, this needs to be an ongoing habit, a habitual action of the church. Healthy believers and healthy churches encourage one another and build one another up. I think in some ways, we've seen the church do just the opposite over the last few months. The church in, sometimes has become a place of struggle and conflict, a place where people are put down for their way of thinking this way or their way of thinking that way. Folks, that's not what we should be about. That's not what a healthy church looks like. That's not what a healthy believer looks like. We should have a habit of encouraging one another and building one another up. I challenge you to that today. He moves on in verse 12. And in the ESV, it says, we ask you, brothers. In some translations, it says, and or now. And the meaning there might be furthermore, all right? So he says, therefore, encourage one another, build one another up. And then furthermore, do the following things. And he goes into a list of things. And we see them divided into a couple different areas here. We see the first part of this section divided in how we interact with other people. And then the last part of this section talks about how we interact with the Lord. And, and so let's take a look at those things. He says, furthermore, I ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now, listen, this is a hard passage for a pastor to preach, right? So good thing he's not here today. Like, this is tough because some, it's hard for somebody to stand up here and, and to say, you must respect me right? But that's not the idea here. That's not even how Paul asks. Paul comes to them and he says, he asks them, brothers. He begs them. He pleads with them. He implores them to respect those in leadership. And he does this not just so that the leaders might be respected, but he does this for their own health, for the health of the church, for the health of the leaders, for the health of the individuals. 
He says, please, I ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you. Now, the word respect here uh, means several different things. It says uh, that it means to pay regard to someone, to appreciate them, to see them clearly for who they are, to not take them for granted. And then one of the last things that I read that this meant was to respect it was to know them, to truly know our leaders. Now, all of us as church members, we kind of expect our leaders, our teachers, our pastors, our ministers to know us, right? They, we want them to know our names. We want them to know our families. We want them to know our, our issues, our struggles, the things that we're good at or whatever. We expect that the leaders among us would know us. But Paul says here that we need to know our leaders, Now, what I'm not saying is, and what Paul is not saying here, is that we need to be all up in our pastor's business, (laughs) right? A lot of people like to do that, but not very many people are willing to invest in our leaders' lives in a way that they could truly know them, that they could know their heart, that they could know the passion of why they do what they do. Why do they teach? Why Why do some of you volunteer for years and years and years to teach a Sunday school class. You study your quarterly, you study your lesson on a weekly basis, and you pour out the word to people around you. Why? We need to know the passion and purpose behind our leaders. We also need to know the work and sacrifice here. It says we respect those who labor among us. The word labor insinuates that this is strenuous, Um, I I was a youth pastor for many years. I served in a church in Fort Worth and then here in Greenville as well, uh, and actually one in Lubbock when I was in school out there for a time. But I was a youth pastor for many years, and I was asked more than once, sometimes maybe a little uh, in fun, but I also know maybe in a little bit of reality, but I was asked more than one time, what do you do the rest of the week besides Wednesday and Sunday, right? Right? What else do you do? And, uh, and the truth of the matter is, I believe that there are some church members who wonder that about our leaders, who wonder that about their pastor, who wonder about their leaders and elders and teachers. And the truth of the matter is, folks, we've got to know clearly and see clearly the amount of sacrifice and work that our leaders put in on our behalf. Really, Sundays and Wednesdays are really more of a victory lap for most of our leaders, right? For all the race that they run on a constant basis, week after week, day after day, year after year, their entire lifetime, they are on a race for us as the body of Christ. And when they stand in front of us on Sunday or on Wednesday and they teach and they pour those things out, that's really just, that's their favorite time, right? That's the easy part for most of our leaders and teachers and pastors. That's the easy part. But the everyday life, everyday work, we've got to know and realize what they put into that time frame. I heard a pastor say that some messages are 40 years in the making. Some sermons, 40 years in the making. Now that sounds somewhat ridiculous to us, but the truth of the matter is our leaders and teachers and pastors have studied have gone to school, they spend days and days a week studying, they've experienced things, they've walked through situations with people, and when they stand here in front of us, it's a lifetime 
that they're sharing with us, a lifetime. We've got to be able to see that more clearly. And Philippians 2.29, Paul's talking about Epaphroditus there, and he talks about that he came to him and he was so thankful that he came and that he had been sick and that he almost gave his life for them, for Paul and, and for the Philippians. And he said, I am thankful for people like this who are willing to give their life for the church, willing to give everything. And folks, that's our type of leaders that we have. That's the type of ministers and pastors and elders and teachers that this church is full of. And we have to understand that they have given their time and their energy and their family and their spiritual and emotional stress in their lives. We have to see it and we have to know them. So you might ask me, how can we know them? All I ever see is Matt standing up here or Jesse leading a song. How can I know who they are? Well, here's a couple of tips for you. Number one, you should labor beside them for a while. If you're not involved in the activities and the ministry of this church, you'll never know what goes into that that ministry. You'll never know the amount of time and effort that goes in. So I encourage you to labor beside the leaders in your life. Volunteer to, to teach a class. Volunteer to help them in a situation. Work alongside them in a mission project. Walk through life with them from time to time. Secondly, I encourage you to love on their families a little bit. I think our leaders and pastors' families um, get left behind sometimes. We expect the attention and the time of our pastors and leaders many times at the expense of their families, and we're fine with that until their family blows up. And then we're no longer fine with it. And suddenly they can't lead us anymore because their family's disintegrated. But all along, we have let their families suffer because of what we've asked and required of them. Folks, we got to love on our leaders' families. we got to get to know their spouses, their kids. we got to figure out how to serve them so that we might know them better. I'm going to tell a story. I've told this story a million times. Many of you have heard it from me, I'm sure, from time to time. But when I was on staff, um, this was an example of somebody who served me and knew me, and it changed my life forever. And that's why I tell the story over and over again. But when I was 15 years old, I was a student in the church, and we were going to youth camp. And uh, the youth minister had put all of our names out on a table um, so that church members could pick up those names and they could uh, pray for us while we were at camp. They could pray for our salvation. They could pray for our uh, relationship with the Lord. They could just pray for relationships, all of that stuff. And this, this lady in my church picked up my name when I was 15 years old. Uh, before I went off to camp. And about 13 or 14 years later, as a minister, I stood in an ICU room um, with her and her daughter. And uh, all through my life as a high school student, as a college student, when I would come back home, this woman would always ask about me. She would always check in on me. How are you doing? How was school? When I got married, how was my wife? When I we had, we had a baby. She was always concerned about my family. She knew me. She was praying for me on an ongoing basis. And when I was about 28, 29, I stood in this ICU room with her. And 
her daughter reached over into her Bible and she pulled out this piece of paper. And on this piece of paper, there were names and things just written in all different directions all over this piece of paper. And her, and her daughter said, Joel, this is my mom's prayer list and I want you to see something. And right on that prayer list at the top, Joel Bench. For years and years and years, she had dedicated her time and her effort to pray for me, first as a student and then as a minister, as somebody who worked. And, and ultimately, I got to be with her during the worst of times of struggles in her life. But she was the one that strengthened me. She knew me. She encouraged me. Folks, listen, we've got to respect those who labor among us. We've got to love on them. We've got to know them. We've got to pray for them. I encourage you to do that. Enough of that. Matt's not here, so I gave it to you. <laughs> Next, it says that uh, they are over us in the Lord. I'm going to move on a little quickly here. A lot of us in today's society, especially when we hear that somebody is over us in something, it really riles us up. Like, we don't really like that very much. We don't like to be told what to do anymore. We don't like to be told that we have to do this or we have to do that. And our reactions come from all different directions, people from all different perspectives. And our reactions might be, well, I have my rights. I can do whatever I, I want. Or uh, no one can tell me what to do. Or maybe uh, we really respect authority, but, uh, but we still say those things. Or maybe the opposite side, we don't respect authority at all. And all authority is evil and abusive and should be done away with, Right. And so we hear this from all different directions, from all different kinds of people, that authority is bad. The scripture says here that the leaders among us, they are over us in the Lord. And folks, we have to get to a place where we get comfortable again with authority. Because if we can't get comfortable with authority in our everyday lives, if we can't get comfortable with uh, authority from, from our church leaders and teachers and pastors, then we are not going to be comfortable with authority from God. And if ultimately we're going to say, God, I, I, I like you and everything, but you can't tell me what to do. I like you, but all these rules aren't for me. I think you're pretty cool, but I can do what I want to do. And the result is that we lose all respect even for God's authority in our life. Now, we need to understand that when this scripture says that they are over you, it doesn't mean that they lord over you, that they stand above you, condemning you or crashing down upon you. Instead, it means that they protect you, they direct you, they guide you. I would never suggest that we should blindly follow anyone. But when we know somebody... When we really know them, then we can trust that because God has placed them in our lives, we can follow after them. And we can be okay with someone having authority in our lives, especially authority in the Lord. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, I want you to hear this because it adds something to this that maybe you don't think of. You think, well, everybody likes to tell us what to do or, or how to live. Listen to this. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. Here's the truth, folks. Our leaders, our pastors, our elders, our teachers are going to have to give an account 
for the leading they've done in this place. And they don't take that lightly. So they're not just trying to lord over us. They're not just trying to tell us how we ought to act or be, but they are here to protect us, to direct us, to guide us. God has placed them in our lives that we might respect them as they work over us in the Lord. Lastly, it says here that they admonish us. Now, admonishing can sometimes have a very negative context. And and one of the definitions that I found uh, really made me feel a little bit guilty. But admonishing, it says, is the corrective influence upon a person who is not predisposed to accept instruction. I know that's me sometimes, right? I'm not predisposed to accept instruction. And yet our leaders and teachers and elders and pastors have been called to admonish us at times when we are not doing the things that we need to be doing or when we are outside of the will of God. The scripture goes on and it says that we are to esteem them in love. Now, it would be one thing if you said, oh, yeah, I mean, I respect them because I have to. I respect them because that's, you know, it's part of the deal. Like they're, they're this, they're that. I respect them because of tradition, because of their placement here. But it says instead to esteem them in love. Folks, we have to understand that it is much different to respect somebody out of love than it is out of requirement. So we have to learn how to love and respect our leaders. We'll move along from this section. The last part of that verse there says, um, it says, be at peace among yourselves. Now this could mean two things. Number one, if there's conflict among you and any of the leadership around you, we should try everything we can. We should make every effort to be at peace with them. We should seek out forgiveness. We should work through issues with our leaders. But I think it also means that we should all be at peace with one another for the benefit of our leaders. And I don't know about you, but as a parent, one of the most discouraging things that I ever experienced was the fighting of my two girls. Now, Hannah's here, and she would say it was never her fault. Hallie is not here. She can't defend herself. Um, but when my daughters would fight with one another, they would be at each other, and I would think, what have I done wrong? How have I not taught them? We've always talking about loving one another, and they can't even love their own blood. They can't even love their own sister, right? How could they possibly love anyone else? And the, and the truth is, guys, I believe that our leaders, our pastors at times, they look out over our congregation and they say, what have I done wrong? They can't even love one another. They can't even be at peace with one another. So Paul encourages us to be healthy, to be strong in the faith. We seek out peace with one another. Now he makes the transition in verse 14. And we'll move quickly through the rest of this. He says, I urge you, brothers. And again, he says, I plead with you. I beg with you. I urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. This whole section talks about how we as a church or we as believers should approach people in our life who are not up to the task. The idle here, uh, the definition of the word idle could mean lazy. It could mean unruly, undisciplined, careless. 
Many, uh, many suggest that in this case, Paul's actually talking about people who, because they thought the return of Christ was, uh, was right around the corner, many of them had stopped being active at all. They were just shaking tambourines and waiting for Jesus to come back, right? And they had forgotten everything about the activity that they were called to do. He says to admonish them, to warn those who are living the life, who are not living the life they are called to do, to admonish those who are lazy or unruly or careless in their life. And then he says, encourage the faint-hearted, the tired. I don't know about you, but when I read this scripture, this word really struck me. Faint-hearted. I don't know about you guys, but I've been faint-hearted. I've been tired. The word could mean fearful, discouraged, worried, losing heart. These people were facing the loss of their friends and their family, and they were facing persecution and struggle, and they didn't see the end of it coming. And many folks in our world today are facing similar discouragement and worry, and they're tired. As a healthy church and healthy believer, we encourage those who are tired. And then it says to help the weak. And we're not sure here if this means physically or spiritually, maybe both. There may have been those among them that were physically weak, but definitely those that were spiritually weak. And it says to help them, to support them. One of the definitions here is of help is to cling to them. And it reminded me of the story in Exodus 17 of Moses as he stood above the army as they battled. Um, and he was, he, when he wrote, raised his hands, the, the army would be victorious. And when he got tired and his arms go, would go down, they would lose in the battle. And he had two friends that came along beside him, right? And as he stood there, his friends held his arms high so that there might be victory. There might be victory for the nation. Victory for Moses. Victory for those that were holding his arms up. Folks, if we want to experience victory, if we want to experience blessings, if we want to experience the reality of God's hope in our lives, then we cling to the weak. We hold up the arms of those who are tired. He says, be patient with them all. This is hard. This is difficult for us. Again, I mentioned earlier, I have a, we have a new puppy. He's about five months old, and he can sit if I feed him. I'm, he's kind of like me, very food motivated. Um, he can sit, he can lay down, he can do all those things. If I don't have food, he loses his stinking mind. He just goes. I saw a graphic the other day. They said, maybe somebody posted it actually here. Like you have a little puppy for like the first four months. They're cute. And then you have like a, a, a dinosaur that's out of control for a year and a half. And then a nice dog again at the end. And I kind of feel like we're in the dinosaur area. And the truth of the matter is sometimes I lose my patience with him. I just want him to behave. I just want him to do what he's supposed to do. And he just can't do it. And I lose my patience with him. And, and here's the thing. Patience is a gift of the Holy Spirit. And it's not only a gift for the one who has patience. It's also a gift for the one who experiences that patience. And so as we let the Spirit live inside of us and we're able to offer patience to the people around us, it benefits them and it also changes us. I know when I lose my patience with a dog, in a few minutes I'm like, that didn't do any good. He's not acting any better. And, and I just 
feel bad about myself that I yelled at my dog, right? Not that anybody else would ever yell at their dog. Patience is a gift for us. And when we experience patience, when we experience that gift through the Holy Spirit and we give that to those around us, we all benefit. Verse 15 says this, See that or make sure that no one repays anyone evil for evil. Again, I'm reminded of our current culture. And here's what we hear most often uh, from folks. We hear this. We hear, I can't believe you did that. I can't believe you would act like that. I can't believe that you would say that. And the response from those people is, well, he said it first. Well, he did it first. Well, he acted that way first. Man, that is a horrible person. Well, he's not as bad as those people. Folks, we cannot, as believers, repay evil for evil. We can't take someone treating us bad and make that a a right to return the favor to them. Our response to evil must always be good. It says to seek to do good to one another and to everyone. In Scripture, we're really only called as believers to defend two things. Number one, we're to defend the weak. We're to defend the orphan, the widow, those among us in need. We are to defend them. And secondly, we're to defend the gospel. And anything that hinders our defense of the gospel, we should avoid. And that means acting evil toward those who act evil toward us. It hinders the gospel. It's impossible for people around us to hear about the goodness and grace of our God when we don't have goodness or grace at all in our lives. Romans 5.8 reminds us of Christ's response to our evil. It says this, while we were yet sinners, while we were evil, Christ died for us. He did not repay evil for evil. Instead, he gave himself up for us. Folks, that's got to be our attitude when evil comes our way. The last part of verse 15 says, Seek to do good to, to anyone, everyone, constantly pursuing to do good. Finally, let's take a look at verses 16, 17, and 18. And What's interesting here, and I'm not a Greek scholar, but in what I've read, these sections here, 16, 17, 18, have no connectors. So for the Greek speakers there, it would have been very abrupt. It would have been unusual for them. They, they are used to having connectors go between the things, but instead it's like a, a shotgun of, of commands, a shotgun of, uh, of Paul saying, do these things, and he says this. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, Give thanks in all circumstances. Rejoice always. It's difficult to do. But our joy, like our patience, is a gift from the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit is alive in us and we are feeding the Holy Spirit, we are moving closer and closer to Him and closer to in our relationship with the Lord then joy is a result. It's not dependent on circumstances, but on the fact that we are in Christ. Listen, folks, I would never deny that sadness 
and grief are real. They are real in our lives. And many of us face them. But we have to recognize that in the most agonizing of situations, God, through his Holy Spirit, can bring us hope and can bring us joy. He says here, to pray without ceasing. Now, obviously, we can't pray as we drive our car. We can't uh, always pray when we're uh, working on our computers at work or whatever. I think the idea that Paul has here is that we pray frequently, we pray reoccurringly, that we live in an attitude of prayer, and that we're dependent on God's presence and his work in our everyday lives. I know people who spend hours in prayer, many people who wake up early in the morning and they pray for hours and they go over their list, just like Miss Long, my, my, the lady who prayed for me for so long. She would pray over that list. She would pour over it. I'm thankful for people like that. But folks, if our prayer time lasts from 5 a.m. to 6 a.m. and the rest of the day we never consider what God has to say to us, we're missing out on the power of prayer. In every instance, in every circumstance, we need to ask, God, what about here? God, what do I need to do in this conversation? God, what do I need to do in this circumstance? God, what do I need to do in this decision? God, I need your presence. Always pray without ceasing. And lastly here, it says, give thanks in all circumstances. Now, I want to draw your attention to the word in. Give thanks in all circumstances. It does not say for all circumstances. Of course we're not thankful for sickness. Of course we're not thankful for death. Of course we're not thankful for struggles in our lives. But in the midst of those circumstances, we can be thankful because we have a great and mighty God. We are thankful for Jesus. We are thankful for our salvation. We are thankful for his forgiveness, for our acceptance, for the hope that we have in him. We can be thankful in the midst of our circumstances, even when we can't be thankful for them. Romans 1.21 says this about the opposite. It says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. So actually what Romans says is that ingratitude is actually a feature of pagan depravity. People who don't know God are not thankful. Those who do know God and trust in God, have hope in God, are grateful in all circumstances. And finally, the last verse says, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is God's will for us to be healthy, healthy believers, a healthy church. These things, let's go through the checklist. If you went into the doctor's office, there would be a list. It says this, encourage one another. Are you encouraging? Build one another up. Are you building up the weak around you? Respect and honor those in authority. Be at peace with everyone. Admonish those around you who are struggling. Help those who are weaker than you. Be patient with everyone. Seek to do good for all men, not evil. Live a life of joy, prayer, and thankfulness. Folks, these are the symptoms of a healthy Christian life. And these are the symptoms of a healthy church. If you're like me, you may look at that list and you say, hmm, I might be sick. I might be sick. 
And that's okay because we're in this together. We're walking through this together. And as healthy believers around you and around me encourage me and build me up, and I see the joy and thankfulness and prayer in their life, then I can be built up and encouraged as well. I want to challenge you today to be aware of the sickness or health in your life. Is there something keeping you from being healthy? Is there sin? Is there discouragement? Is there bitterness, distraction keeping you from being a healthy Christian? If so, you need to deal with those things today. We talked about many of these things are a fruit of the Spirit. And so if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, it's almost impossible for you to have these things in your life. So I encourage you today, if you don't know Jesus, to come into a relationship with him and let the Spirit live through you so that you might be healthy today. I encourage you to set an appointment with the physician. Sometimes we need a checkup. Sometimes we need a checkup. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is always challenging to us. Thank you that your word is not um, that it never comes back void, that we hear from you and the result of our hearing is that we can understand better how we should live. And God, I pray today that if there's anyone in this place who does not know you as their Savior, that there is anyone in this place who does not have the Spirit living inside of them, that today God, they would want to be healthy, that they would want to come into a relationship with you. And God, I pray that they would take this opportunity to do that. And God, I pray for the rest of us, that we would examine our lives, that we would see where we have issues, that we would see where we struggle. And God, we would do our best to to work through those things with your help by pressing more into your spirit, by trusting you more, by counting on you in our daily lives. And God, I pray that those of us in this room that are strong, God, would be an encouragement, a support, a building up of those around us who are weak. God, we love you, and we thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.